0: Good morning everybody. Good morning. I want to invite the children to Children's Church if you're interested in going. Your teacher will meet you at the back there. And while we experience this mini exodus, play on words They're short, people leaving. Um, I just wanted to make a real quick personal announcement. Um, uh, I was down in Orange and went through the licensing process. That's the first step for ordination. Um, so I sat on a board for about two and a half hours and got questions thrown at me, left, right, and center, and I loved every second of it, it was a blast. So um, fortunately I passed, Um, I was a little worried. Thank you, I was a little worried because they were setting up a stake and gathering kindling, and I thought, you know, (laughs) they take this stuff pretty seriously, but I survived. So uh, it was a joy, it was really a lot of fun to go and do that, and uh, looking forward to the next step. Uh, I've gotta double check, but I think the next step is I'm licensed for three years, and then I apply for ordination. And the ordination board is basically the same thing, it's just like three and a half hours. So it's a bigger, a little bit more in depth. Um, And uh, I have to do it with uh, thumb screws on too, so I don't know how that tradition got started, but there we are. Um, All right, before we look at the scriptures, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we need you this morning. We need your word, we need your Holy Spirit to Open our eyes and open our hearts to the truth that lays before us. Uh, Lord, would you please come and make my words, um, as I try to explain and, and open up these scriptures, Lord, would you make my words in tune with your thoughts and in line with what you intend for Trinity Community Church to hear from your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would open all of our hearts to the truth that you're telling us that we might be inclined towards obedience that we might hear what you have to say and follow your way, follow your lead. Lord, most importantly, we would just pray that you would be glorified, that in these words of scriptures, that we would see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ and be amazed. Lord, come and be with us now as we open your word. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're at the last parable that Luke is going to tell us from his gospel. This is it. From, from this point on, next week will be the triumphal entry. We are going into Jerusalem after this. This is his last parable. And you remember my point um, with the Gospel of Luke, the way I understand the Gospel of Luke to work is, Luke is telling us what it means to be a good disciple. He, he is showing us what disciples are like. And I got that from the introduction because he writes to Theophilus and he says, Theophilus, I want you to understand the things that you have been taught. And disciples are learners. Disciples learn from the master, so Luke has been going through and teaching us these things. Last week, we looked at Zacchaeus, and if you remember, I said a lot of the principles that we've been learning kind of flow into the Zacchaeus story for us. He kind of used that to bring them to a, a, a one crystal point. So the way that this section begins then, he says, and they heard, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So as they heard these things, that ties it very closely with what came before. And what did they just hear? They just heard Jesus say, I came to seek and save the lost. So they hear that. He's already told them that they're going to Jerusalem, that when he goes to Jerusalem, he will be shamefully treated, turned over to the Gentiles, killed, and three days again, rise. Um, so that's, that's the story that he's heard. As, he's, as they've heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Why, why a parable now? Well, again, Luke does this, this great service. We don't have to guess what this parable is about. He spells it out for us. He says, here's what this parable is about. This is how you interpreted it. He tells them that because they're near Jerusalem. They've left Jericho. Jericho was about eight miles from Jerusalem, so they're heading towards Jerusalem. And as they're going, people expected the kingdom of God to appear immediately. So as they're heading to Jerusalem, what they're expecting is the Davidic throne to be set up, God's reign to be established in Israel, we're going to get rid of those nasty Romans, everything's going to be great It's the golden age is coming. And you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jesus looking him in the face and saying, no, I'm going to die. And they didn't understand it. I I talked about um, confirmation bias. Once you believe something, it's hard to accept information that contradicts that belief. And, and so as they're walking towards Jerusalem, you can hear the crowds muttering, this is it, man. This is going to be great. David's, gonna, David's great son is going to sit on the throne. This is wonderful. And they don't understand. So Jesus tells them a parable to correct that. He wants them to understand that the kingdom of God is not like that. So where do they get this idea that the kingdom of God is about to appear? A um, bunch of scriptures we could quote. Let's stick just with what Luke has had to say so far. Um, In Luke 11, remember, Jesus cast out a demon and the Pharisees came and said, Ah, you do it by Beelzebul. You do it by the prince of demons. And Jesus' response is, Well, if I do it by Satan, then Satan casts out Satan and his kingdom is falling. If I don't do it by Satan, then I must be doing it by God. And if I do it by God, he says uh, in verse 20, he says, But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So they, he's, he's told them right to their face the kingdom of God has come upon you it's here, and then in chapter 17 he's talking with the Pharisees and he says um, don't don't when they start talking about this where the kingdom is don't say or they'll say look here or, or there it is behold the kingdom of God Jesus says isn't out there it's in your midst. So they have got Jesus own words to say hey the kingdom is here man this is it. And, and now we're going to Jerusalem. That's when it's going to be inaugurated in fullness. This is going to be wonderful. Um, I've quoted George Elden Ladd before to talk about the kingdom of God. So I just want to do it again because I don't think we can hear it too much. <laughs> when we all know the term kingdom of God, right? We all use that term. What does it mean? What do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? We, we, Jesus taught us to pray that his kingdom would come. So what are we anticipating? What are we looking forward to? Well, the way that it's explained is it's, it's God's sovereign rule and his established purpose in, a, in this area. So, like, the, in the parable, this, this nobleman's going to go off and get a kingdom. Is he going to go to another place to pick up a property, a piece of land, and bring it back with him? The kingdom is not the property. It's not the piece of land. Is he going to a far country to get a bunch of people to come and live with him, and that's going to be his kingdom? It's not people. He is going to a far land to get the authority to rule over this property and this people. That's what he means by getting a kingdom. So, the kingdom of God is God's established rule over a a land and a people. That's what the kingdom of God is. So, that way, the kingdom of God can be present now as Jesus has come. The inbreaking of the kingdom is, is happening. He's beginning to triumph over his enemies, he's beginning to bring about these things. And yet, it's not here in its fullness. It's still coming. There will be a point when God will reign unopposed. And so one of the questions people ask, well, is well, I thought God was sovereign. Is He not sovereign over this? He's got to come and get His sovereignty? Um, I mean, look at how messed up the world is. There's there's all kinds of problems here. So, how is it that that um, the kingdom is here but not here? And does it mean God isn't in control yet and that he will be in control? Well, That's a whole branch of theology called theodicy. It's the problem of evil and and God's rule over it and how does it relate. Um, I think a a good way to think about this, to to kind of put these two together, because we're in between times, we're in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, is God is working a purpose in this fallen, broken world. And he's bringing it to a point. So it's not that he's out of control of the things that are going on. It's just this isn't there yet. The, the, The cord hasn't resolved. The sound hasn't come to its fullness. It's, the chord's been struck, but we're waiting for the, the resolution of it. And so that's the picture of the coming of the kingdom. Is it started now, but when Jesus returns, he'll bring it in its fullness, and then God will reign over the world and it will be according to the, the purpose that God has for it. So that's kind of the idea of the kingdom. They completely don't understand this. They expect David's son to sit on a throne. They're expecting an earthly kingdom a kingdom that can be established by arms. And so that's what Jesus is trying to correct here. He says, you guys got to understand what's coming next. So the question that this, this uh, thing deals with is, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? So what, what are we to do while the king is away? Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again, and then he's going to ascend to heaven, and we're not going to see him for a long time. So what do we do in the interim? What, what is our role now that we're waiting for the king to come back? Well, what we're going to see is in this parable, as he unpacks it for us, we're going to see the departing instructions. Then we're going to have him come and assess uh, the situation upon his return, and then he's going to render his judgment. So he's going to give us departing instructions. He's going to assess how those instructions have been followed and then render judgment at the end. So his his departing instructions then, starting in verse 12, he says... um, Starting in verse 12, he says, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So that sets the stage here. So this nobleman is going to receive his kingship. He's going to receive his kingdom. So he's, he's heading off to a far country. What Jesus is cluing us in here is he's going to be gone for a while. Back in this day, they didn't have jets to take them to a far country and back in in 30 minutes or something. When you were going to travel to a far country, that's like traveling from, say, Israel to uh, to, uh, uh, India and back. That's going to be a long journey. So Jesus is cluing us in right here up front. This is going to take a while. I'm, I'm heading off to a far country. Jesus is the nobleman, and he's going to get his kingship in this far country. He's going to be gone. So don't be surprised that it's been two thousand years and he hasn't come back yet skeptics like to click their tongue and point and go oh yeah you know still waiting Um, uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy the the restaurant at the end of the universe Uh, the universe collapses and then this prophet suddenly shows up and go did i make it (laughs) you know they're trying to make fun of this idea that jesus is going to return he warned us up front it's going to be a while and so while i'm gone here's what i want you to do he gives them minas and he, he says, I want you to take this, and I want you to invest it while I'm gone. Do business with this. What I've given you, what I've entrusted you, you do business with that until I return. So it's not he's left the house and just you know have fun, you guys. He's given instructions. So what, what's a mina other than a bird? He didn't hand them birds. A mina was a, 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 a about equivalent to about four months wages for an average worker. So a mina is not a huge amount. In the parable of the talents, a talent was a huge amount, but a minor is just a, a small amount. He, he gave them a little bit, and he said, okay, do business with that. Um, so what do those miners represent in this parable? What's that supposed to be for us? He didn't give us money when we became Christians. Um, one of the commentators, uh, Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, says, the minas represent responsibilities undertaken by the servants because of their association with Jesus they are to carry out their responsibilities efficient, effectively and profitably until he returns. So the miners represent the responsibilities that the king's given. He doesn't enunciate them here, he doesn't list them here, he just says the king is going and he's given you these responsibilities. Use these responsibilities, use these talents, use these things that he's given you wisely and multiply them because when he comes back he wants to know how you've done. So that idea of the responsibility, I think that kind of works because what happens to the bad servant at the end the good servant says he says hey you've done well with a little i'm giving you much the bad servant he says take what he's got since he didn't use it well and give it to the other guy so to the one who's been responsible more responsibility is given but to the one who's irresponsible he, what he has is taken away so i think that's what he's talking about for us as he's looking at us and he's saying Here's the responsibilities that you have, you disciples. If you're going to be good disciples, this is what you have to do, and I expect you to do it, and I expect it to produce uh, fruit. I expect it to to mean more. So, what are the responsibilities then? Come on, Luke, don't do this to us. You got to unpack that for us. Well, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, I've been trying to over and over again to point to, here's the discipleship principle. This is what disciples do. Luke has been beating this into our head for months. This is what a disciple does. This is what a faithful disciple does. But, you know, the beginning of this, it says, as he said these things, or as they heard these things, looking back to the story of Zacchaeus. And if you remember last week when we looked at Zacchaeus, I said, hey, Zacchaeus is great because it's this, this kind of culmination of all these different things that he's been teaching us. We see it reside in this one, par- or this one story about Zacchaeus. So what do we learn there? I know you all have your notes and memorized it from last week because, you know, hang on every word I say. So let me go ahead and refresh my own memory, and you guys can just kind of, you know, come along for this. So first of all, Zacchaeus, um, he climbed a tree. This rich man climbs a tree and humbles himself. He's got childlike anticipation of Jesus coming. He looks at the crowd. He can't see, and so he acts like a little kid, and he climbs a tree. And so for Zacchaeus, we're supposed to have this childlike anticipation of Jesus We're waiting for him to come. So he's going to be gone for a while, but we've got to be anxious for his return and watching for it, anxious for it. The second thing was humility, right? He humbled himself in front of this giant crowd of people by climbing a tree. We said humility was a sign. It's a mark of of a disciple. And humility, defined biblically, is understanding ourselves right before God not before the crowd but before god i have a chance to see jesus coming i don't care what the crowd says i'm climbing the tree i want to see this god so there's a that element of humility and then when jesus tells him come on down Zacchaeus. i'm coming to your house there's this joyful receiving of jesus receive him joyfully and and the illustration i used last week was not like an airbnb where you put him in the guest room and you know here's a bottle of water here's some snacks there's your room when Zacchaeus brought him in, he brought him into his living room. And he said, I, you're in my entire house. And so that's another discipleship principle is joy, joyfully receiving Jesus into all of our lives, not just the guest room. And then how did Zacchaeus respond in the end? Jesus didn't even ask him to do it. He looks at Jesus and says, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm giving it back fourfold. And half of what I've got is going to the poor. So the other discipleship principle is just live it, being full with who Jesus is in your life and giving freely to others outflowing of everything that you have to others so that's just in Zacchaeus there's some discipleship principles there my friends are your minas. invest them that's the picture that we see here so the next thing that happens it seems like it's out of place he says but his citizens hated him and sent a a delegation after him saying we do not want this man to reign over us what is up with that why is this even in the parable well, there's a historical context to this story. Um, in 4 BC, Herod the Great died. Herod the Great was the one who built the temple. He had established a bunch of uh, the, the uh, nation of Israel, the, the Judea. He kind of built it up. And he dies in 4 BC. His son, Herod Archelius kind of stepped in and started taking over. Well, he didn't have the authority to do that. He's got to get the authority from Rome before Her- Archelius takes over. So one of the things that he does is, on Passover, there was getting some unruly people in the temple. He killed 3,000 people in the temple, had them executed in the temple, and then canceled Passover that year. And so he was obviously not a very popular king. He was a ruthless guy, and he was going to go to Rome and get his kingdom and come back and say, now I rule over you. Well, as he's sailing to Rome, the Jews sent a delegation to Rome ahead of him and said, we don't want this guy ruling over us. So what happened is Archelius comes to Rome, and he bows to Caesar, and he's expecting to be made king, but Caesar's already heard what's going on with this guy. And so he says, instead of king, you'll be tetrarch, which is part of a divided kingdom. You'll be a ruler of a portion of the kingdom, not the whole thing, until you can prove yourself. If you prove yourself to be a good king, then I will give you the title of king, which, by the way, never happened. So this is the picture is this delegation going and saying, we don't want this guy because Archelius is a really a tough guy. He's really mean, and we don't want him ruling over us. So Jesus introduces this picture, and he says, so as I'm the nobleman, I'm going off to receive my kingdom. There are people who don't want me to rule over them. And so what this does, I think, is it shades the the crowd's understanding of what's going on. They're looking at that nobleman and equating him with Archelius and saying, he's a bad dude yeah we don't want him ruling either and so they must be anticipating Well, what's going to happen to these folks he's given minus to? two they're going to get their heads taken off or something this is going to be terrible so Jesus has already slanted us to think of this this nobleman as a really severe guy and that's the picture that those those citizens who hate him are that's what that's there for so then what really happens so Jesus continues he, he returns and he, as he returns he's going to assess the situation So starting in verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. And the crowd must have gulped at this point. This is going to be bad. That he might know what they gained doing business. The first came to him and said, Lord, your mina has made 10 more. So he's got 11, right? He's got the original mina, and by the way, Lord, here's 10 more. And the the king now says, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. I gave you one mina, four days' wages, and you were faithful with the little tiny thing I gave you. Now you are the ruler over ten cities in my kingdom. That's, that's That's a district. That's a huge bit of ruling. I mean, like cities here kind of blend into each other. There, they were big outposts. So this man now has this giant territory that he's, he's sovereign over. He's going to rule over these cities for the king. That's pretty incredible. This man is faithful. He's multiplied it ten times, and he gets this big area. And then the second one comes, and he says, Lord, your mind has made five more. And he says... You, too, will have reign over five cities. So it's not that he didn't, he praised him less, by the way. This is just Jesus kind of clipping this down and getting the point. Notice he gave ten servants, minas. We only hear about three. He's kind of like, don't want to lose everybody, don't want to get boring here. So the five, same response. You have been faithful. Look what you did, good servant. You get a charge over five cities. Five cities is a county, practically. This is, this is a big reward for just five, for one little mina. That's a great thing. And then finally, um, oh, and um, so what's going on here is, is notice that 10 and 5 both get a reward. What he's telling us is don't compare each other. Don't look to each other and say, well, I'm not Billy Graham, therefore I must not be very good. Jesus must not be proud of me or happy with me or not going to reward me. He's saying, if you're faithful with a little, I will bless you. I promise I will bless you. So that's that picture. Then in verse 20 Then another came. He isn't even numbered. It's the first. The second, oh, and him. It's kind of the picture. Another came and he said, Lord, here's your miner which I laid aside in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So the third servant takes that miner, wraps it up in a handkerchief and hides it. That that handkerchief there, by the way, is a a cloth that they wrap around their neck so they could mop their brow when they were sweaty and hot. and It's the same word that's used for when, remember in John when Jesus raises from the dead and they look in and the head cloth is wrapped up and sitting, the same thing, handkerchief. It's his cloth for the head. So in other parables we hear about the, the unfaithful servant burying it. At least it was safe. You know, you'd know, you have to know where it was buried. You'd have to have the, the treasure map with the X marking the spot. This guy didn't even do that. He wrapped it up in a handkerchief and you know, left it in the house or something, left it in his top drawer by his socks or wore it around his neck. It's not even really safe. So not only did he not invest it, he didn't even keep it secure. So how does the king respond to this man? He says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in a bank? And at my coming, I would have at least collected interest. So he looks to this man. He says, you knew better. You know what kind of a man I am. And you were so afraid, you just hid it? That's foolish. Your own words are condemning you here. So he looks to them and he says, you knew I was severe. And you should have put in a bank even a small amount of interest. 1.25% 1.25% or what do what savings accounts yield anymore? Hardly anything. Here's a mina and about a, a, a hundredth of a mina. And that would have been better for this servant than just saying, here's your original money back. That's what, he, that's what Jesus is saying. I that said the, the difference between the five and the 10 was not the magnitude of how grateful Jesus was. It's just, are you being at least faithful with what you've been given? So at least put it in the bank and bring back a little bit of interest on this. And he didn't even do that. And he said to those who who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And the crowd, like a Greek chorus, says what we're all thinking. But he's got 10. Actually, he's got 11 because he's got the original. He's got 10. Now you're giving him another one. He's got 12. How is that fair? So like a Greek chorus, we're all with these folks saying, what are you thinking? And so the king Actually, Jesus speaking in the the place of the king says, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. When he called the servant wicked, the word there is evil. When Jesus says, uh, teaches us to pray and he says, uh, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one, that's the same word, pornos. It is evil. When Jesus encounters demons that have possessed people, they are evil spirits that he encounters and he casts out. And so he looks at this servant and he puts him in that category. You are evil for not doing what I told you. You knew better and you still didn't do it. So what you have is taken away from you. You get nothing. You lose what you had. You had opportunity here. So the the question I think that we need to ask ourselves is, well, how do I avoid being wicked? How do I stay away from being the evil servant? How do I not squander what the Lord has given me in this time that I'm waiting for him? So uh, here's some thoughts that I had about this. How do we spend our mind as well, is what I'm asking. How do we invest them well, instead of being afraid and tucking them in a cupboard? First of all, you ever hear people say, um, I wouldn't want to worship a God who's so harsh. I wouldn't want to worship a God who's so, who's so mean like that. Do you realize what a foolish thing that is to say? If you know that this God is that harsh, wouldn't you want to be on his good side rather than say, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have anything to do with him? You're inviting the harshness. So if you don't want to squander the money you've been given, recognize that Jesus is going to demand a high cost. He is going to demand from you something at his return. And recognize he's demanding. He's not asking politely. I have given you this, and I, I expect the return. So if, if you imagine that this, this God is that harsh, then it really makes a lot of sense to get on his good side and do what he's asking. Um, why? Well, because look what he gave to his servants upon his return. He didn't beat them. He gave them great reward. Multiple times what he had, they, he had given them in, uh, in the minas, he gave this guy 10 cities. That guy's set for forever. He's going to have great income because these 10 cities are going to support him. So maybe your idea that this God is so harsh isn't exactly right. Maybe, maybe this, this king who returns isn't as mean as you thought he was. Maybe he isn't as stern as the wicked servant believed he was. Actually, he's quite generous in his return. So if harshness is what you encounter first, be on the better side of that. Avoid the harshness. Because when you avoid the harshness, there's a generosity. There's an overflowing generosity. And There's no guarantee that the evil servant's assessment was correct. He was biased. He thought this guy was rough. So the first thing is maybe he is harsh, and you don't want to be involved in that. The second thing to think of is work for the reward there was a reward offered to these guys. And and so we should be working towards that reward. I steal this liberally from John Piper, by the way. I want to be right up front about this. Luke is littered with the promises of reward. So let me just read a few of them to you. Luke um, 6.23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heavens, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Blessed are you when people hate you. Because your reward will be great in heaven. Luke 6.35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So he's telling him, look, if you want to be a giving person, work for the reward. A few weeks ago, um, we were talking about using your wealth to gain friends. Remember that? He says, welcome them, gain friends for yourself. Use the money you've been given to gain friends for yourself so that they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Not to purchase the eternal dwellings, but to stuff them full of your friends. <laughs> that's a reward is to, to go to heaven and see all of these people that you've ministered to waiting to welcome you in. That, that's a reward to work for. That's, that's an incentive. And then Jesus in uh, Luke 12 says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moths destroy. Go to heaven where you get a reward that can't be taken away from you. Work for that now. So that's another way to avoid being the wicked servant going, I don't want to do that, is think about the reward. God asks us to work for reward. He encourages us. Jesus wouldn't have brought it up if it wasn't important. He wouldn't tell us that if it was unrighteous to work for a reward. So how is it not selfish? How are we not health, wealth, and prosperity here? Well, it's simple because we're not working for earthly goods. We're not saying I'm going to give 10% to the church and expect my house to have an additional wing on it when I get home or something. Jesus is telling us to look for these, these rewards, and the way he's telling us to work for them is to give everything away, to spend ourselves on other people to use our riches to gain people into heaven who will be there to welcome us when we get there, to provide for the evil and the wicked and the needy and the poor and all of these things. So it's not selfish because we're not spending everything we have on us. We're spending everything outside, ad extra is the Latin term for it, is on the other. It's going out from us. So we're not being selfish, we're being generous so that we will receive reward in the end. And then the third thing I thought of was You've got to fear the right thing. You need to be afraid of the right thing here. Um, often what we do is we won't do the things that Jesus tells us to do because of fear of the world. Ridicule, loss, we're going to look silly in front of other people. And so we're afraid of the world, and then we don't do what, we, what Jesus has told us to do. We don't follow what he's been asking us to do. Jesus tells this parable in an extraordinarily frightening way. What comes next is terrifying, and if it isn't, you've read it wrong. He says, bring my enemies before me and slaughter them. That's an arresting thing to hear. So what we have to do here is be afraid of the right things. Now, I know what you're thinking. What, what do you mean be afraid? The Bible says perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4:18, right? So we, we should be free from fear. We shouldn't have any fear whatsoever. But the Bible also says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, The Bible commands us, and it tells us to be afraid. So then what does 1 John 4, 18 mean? Well, the context is really important. He says, perfect love casts out fear. But how do we get perfect love? Where does that come from? Well, verse 17, the one right before, it tells us. He says, by this, this love is perfected in us. Okay, this is how I get rid of fear. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so as he is, so also are we in the world. Judgment's involved there. So the perfect love that casts out fear is the perfect love that casts out fear of that judgment, not fear in general. Is I know that God is, is, a, is a, a very strict judge. He follows his law perfectly, and I don't have to fear that judgment because I'm in Christ. So perfect love casts out that fear, the fear of judgment, but not the fear is in awesome respect of God. So fear the right thing. God is the one that we should be fearing here, not the world, not the opinions and, and, and um, machinations of the world. Because what we're doing in this is we're working for the king. He's given you a mina and he said invest. And I'm coming back and when I come back I will have the full authority of my kingship and I will reign over this. So what have you got to fear? Opposition? The king's coming. He's going to take care of the opposition. It's a done deal. He's gone, and he's gotten his, his his kingship, and he's on his way back. So you have nothing to fear in that. Fear the right thing. Fear being the wicked servant who gets chastised because you didn't invest. You didn't even put it in the bank. What are you thinking? That's what you should be fearing, not the opinions of the world. So that's how we can avoid being that that unjust, that wicked servant. And then I just alluded to it. The last part, he says... But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. You know what the Greek word for slaughter is? Slaughter. As in, Jesus is silent before the shears like a lamb to the slaughter. The picture here is these enemies who opposed me, who didn't want me to become king, they're going to be killed in front of me. They're going to be chopped up in front of me. And like I said, don't pretty that up. Don't tame that down and say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's a euphemism or something. It's not a euphemism. It's a graphic, horrifying term. At his return, his enemies will be judged and will be judged severely. Perfectly just, but very severe. That's how that picture is supposed to be. That's what those people are doing in this parable. Is he saying, you want to be on the side of the servants, not on the side of those who oppose me. So these people who who oppose him are the ones who expected the Messiah to come in a specific way and when he didn't show up, they wanted him killed. We're going to turn you over to the Gentiles. They're going to execute you. We'll be done with you. And that's that picture there. These are the enemies. And so what happens when the king comes back? Oh, you thought you were going to kill me, did you? It's supposed to be scary. And, And I think the reason that Jesus ends this parable with that is he's trying to remind us of what he's given us that mine of four. That mine of those responsibilities, those talents, those gifts, those skills that he's given us. And he said, I want you to invest them now. He's saying, these enemies of mine, I want you to turn them into my friends. I want you to go out to these people who oppose me and tell them about who I am. And then they'll be in heaven waiting for you to welcome you in. I want you to use your skills, your talents, your abilities to gain from me followers. And I don't want you to be that wicked servant who loses everything at the end. This is important for us because where we go next is to Jerusalem. And we watch Jesus walk into a bear trap. He's going to be executed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be poorly treated. He's going to be scorned and spit on. And so at that point, as we're going through that, we can lose hope and we can think, oh my gosh, he's defeated. But this picture is supposed to ring in our ears and tell us when he comes back, it's not going to go well for them. And by the way, um, some of the commentators were saying that this is a picture of um, the Jews, because the Jews opposed him. Um, it was the Jews who went to Rome to oppose Archelius, right? So it must be the Jews here. What did Jesus say about his trip to Jerusalem? He said, I'm going to be poorly treated, spit upon, and handed over to more Jews, be handed over to the Gentiles, and then I'm going to be executed. Nobody gets off in this. We don't get to point to one other group and go, oh, it's all them. This is us. His enemies are not just the Jewish leaders who opposed him. They're done. They're done. Their punishment has been handed out. This is everybody who opposes Jesus. And so that should hopefully arrest our hearts and think, we have got to get the gospel out. We have got to tell more people about this. The reality of what awaits them when the king returns is not good. We want them to hear about the true and the living king. And so some of the things we're doing here as a group is we're doing Alpha and inviting people to come in and hear this story of who God is. We're doing outreach at Antelope Valley College. We're going to go and hand out water bottles to people and wish them well on their finals. How is that rescuing them? It's at least putting a positive face on the church and saying, hey, we care and we're engaged. And if people want to stick around and talk, we are going to preach the gospel to them. These are the things that we're trying to do. The little bits, you've been given a mina, right? Four months wages, that's it. Take that little bit that you've got and invest it. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be measured against Billy Graham. Billy Graham was given a mina. He was given a a talent at speaking, at public speaking, at, at sharing his testimony, sharing the gospel. And his mina yielded hundreds of thousands of people. That's not the benchmark for us. We don't get measured against Billy Graham. We get measured against, I gave you a mina, what did you do? Because remember the foolish servant? Look, dude, if you put it in the bank, I'd be happy right now. You didn't even do that. So we work, we take steps, we do the little things that we're called to do now. And we trust that our Savior, our Lord, our reigning King, who will come back, will bless and multiply those things. So what is it that, what's your mina this morning? What have you been entrusted with? Which skills did God give you? Which spheres of influence? What people do you know? Who are you connected with? How are you sharing? That's the minor, and he's not asking you to Billy Graham that thing up. He would be happy if you put it in the bank and got some money back on it. Invest in one person. Better if you get 10, because then you get 10 cities, right? So, you know, we're supposed to work for the reward. I just wanted to point that out. But that's the warning for us is understand the nature of the kingdom. Jesus is gonna die, he's gonna be gone for a long time. And when he comes back, there's reward for us. So work for the reward. That's what the king said to do while he's gone. You ever seen those, those joke t-shirts, look busy, Jesus is coming? That's actually not a bad phrase. <laughs> Instead of look busy, I would say be busy, Jesus is coming. You know He's going to return. That's, this parable is showing he's going to return, and he expects your, you to have been busy about the things of the kingdom. So be busy about the things of the kingdom. You can't lose. You cannot lose on this deal. You're guaranteed a huge return on investment. And that's what the picture is. That's the story. As we now go to Jerusalem, as next week we do the triumphal entry, as we head into the crucifixion, you can't lose. Jesus lost for you and then won it all. He's gone to get that that country for us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the mina that you've given us. We're not worthy of it. We didn't earn it. We didn't uh, graduate from business school to demonstrate how great we are at it. Lord, you simply handed it to us and said, invest. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, by the power of the Spirit, by faith and trust in the promise of the gospel, by longing for the reward that waits us in heaven, Lord, would you empower us to invest well. And, Lord, I'm going to just ask for ten cities. I pray that all of us would wind up with ten cities, that we would take that one mina and multiply it so well that we would all be in charge of great things. Father, make us faithful in the little thing that you've given us now so that we will be faithful with the great things that await. And, Lord, above all of this, it's not about us and which street our mansion is, is on in heaven. Lord, this is about the king who returns and grants great favor. So grant us the faith to trust that you will do these things and that we, we are representing our king in our investments. And, Lord, I want to pray for our Antelope Valley College outreach this week, that you would get us in contact with people who you are calling to yourself, people who need to hear the gospel. And, Lord, I pray like last time that people would be totally confused by what a church is doing there. We don't want a thing. Lord, take that little mina and multiply it for us, we pray. Jesus be glorified, our reigning king. Amen.